Thanks for braving the uh, tiny, itty-bitty little bit of winter that we got. We've all been kind of spoiled by not having winter anymore, and so uh, it was kind of weird to have some snow and a little sleet and things like that. I don't know. Wasn't bad, though. Wasn't bad, though. Those of you guys joining us online, thank you so much for joining us online. We greatly appreciate that. Um, for sure. And one thing I want to do, if you are joining us online right now, um, please comment. We've got, a, a, we, this last week, uh, David was able to discover a new method of doing some things. And so the worship should have sounded very different and a whole lot better, um, as should this portion. And so if there's an issue with the volume or things like that, especially with this mic, let us know. The only way we'll ever know is if you're watching at home and you tell the folks in the sound booth right now, and they can make an immediate adjustment. So please let us know that. And I also want to throw one more thing out there. This will mean nothing to those in the audience, but a dear friend of ours, uh, a lady from our old church that we used to pastor at, um, I have no idea how old Barbie is at this point, but she just got out of the hospital, and uh, her uh, daughter is at her house staying with her. Actually, it's her granddaughter. Is at her house staying with her right now, and I think they're watching at home. So hi, Barb. If you're watching, um, just, just for fun, I, you know, you can do things like that now. It's, it's kind of a cool thing to be able to talk to folks like that. And so anyway, we are so grateful that you are here with us this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father God, we thank you for uh, the safety that we had in getting here this morning. I pray that to all people joining us, whether in person or at home, Father, can just now relax and, Father, pray along with us uh, for that hunger for the stomach to just be churning, growling, to experience you in this moment and in their life. And I pray, as we've been asking folks to do for the last several weeks, and we'll continue to ask them to do, to every week as we gather, pray to have that desire to have an encounter with you. Father, for that's what you seek with us. You want to meet with us each and every day. And when we gather in ways like this, there's a special way that you're able and willing to meet with us. And we pray that we are all open to those opportunities. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, we are excited uh, about what's coming up. If you didn't know, this series that we've been doing on worship is going to culminate in the fifth Sunday, which is next week. And we're going to be doing a little bit of a different type of service. So, we're excited about that. David's been working very hard behind the scenes on that, and our prayer is this. It's the same as every Sunday, that God will be lifted up through everything that we say and do together as the bride of Christ. And we want to continue asking everybody to join us in prayer each and every week, not just during this series, but each and every week before you come to church or before you hit that live stream button at home to just pray real quick. God, God please give me a hunger for you this morning. Give me a hunger for you that opens your mind and opens your heart to whatever God might be wanting to share with you on that individual day and come with a desire to meet with him face to face, to have an encounter with the glory of our Father. Our pursuit must be intentional. It's not going to happen accidentally, especially not for believers. We have to come seeking his presence and he will always make himself available. Why? Because God seeks the same thing with us. He desires to be in our presence. He desires to make himself known to us. And remember, if we do that each and every time we gather, each and every week we gather, each and every time you set aside to worship your God, then it will transform those moments of worship from something you have to do, a duty, to actually a devotion. It will separate ritual, that those systematic things that we're supposed to do as religious people, to an actual relationship 
with our Heavenly Father. And of course, it will change this meeting from just another gathering to a holy gathering, something set apart for our Savior. It's an incredible transformation that will happen because this is why we gather, to worship our God, our Lord, and our Savior. Something I've said each week, and I'll continue to say it is simply this. Worship is not just an experience. It is so much more. It's that realization that you are in the presence of the Almighty God. It's an incredible thing. It's not about what I get out of it in any way, shape, or form. It's about who I am worshiping, and it is about what I bring to the table, what I put into that worship. Worship does not lead to an encounter with God. I want to reiterate that. Worship does not lead to an encounter with God. Worship is an encounter with God. That's a very big difference. Worship is God's gift to mankind. It is what we are created to do. It is the final task of all who place their hope and faith and trust and love in Jesus Christ. And finally, remember, we will have the honor of worshiping for all eternity in his presence. This, is, this isn't just warm-up. This is part of who we are to be forever more. We've talked about Isaiah the last couple weeks and his encounter with God as he stood before God and he realized as he was in the presence of God that he was overwhelmed completely. He realized he was not worthy in any way, shape, or form to be in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And he confessed this to God. And it, it says in Isaiah 6 and 7 that at that moment, one of the seraphim, one of the angels that Isaiah had observed swooped down, went into the fire at the altar, grabbed some tongs, grabbed a coal, came over to the lips of Isaiah and placed them on the lips and then spoke these words. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away from you. Your sin is atoned for. And that moment prepared Isaiah. It cleansed Isaiah and it prepared him for what God was about to do next. And that was to ask him, whom shall we send? And Isaiah says those famous words, here I am, Lord. Send me. Do you realize that this can happen for you as well? Each and every time you come before God with that open, humble heart and you say, God, how can I worship? I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Then God will come to you and purify you in that moment and prepare you for what he has for you to do next. Worship is so important. It makes our worship so amazing. Do you realize that is God's motivation in meeting with you each and every time you gather, you come into his presence. He wants to purify you and prepare you for his purpose as well as you worship him. It's amazing when you realize how unworthy we are on one hand and how willing God welcomes us into his presence on the other. He alone is the only one who can make us worthy. He imparts to us his righteousness. There's nothing we can do or say. It is all about what he has done. His blood covers our sin. His resurrection opens the door to his throne, and it is through Jesus Christ that we can come before the throne of God and worship him directly. It's an incredible thing. Have you praised God for that privilege that you have? I hope that you have, and if you haven't, then this morning is the perfect time to start. Thank you, Jesus, that we aren't just cast aside, <laughs> that we're not forgotten by him, that we are loved in such a way by him. Praise God that we can now come into your presence and worship you. It is such a privilege to be able 
to do that, to come directly to the God Almighty. It might be hard for us to understand that it hasn't always been that way. The history of the Jewish faith from which ours is derived is a long and long and winding history. And throughout that history of the Jews, God had set into place a very specific way for his people to come before him. Way back in the days of Moses, when God led the Hebrew nation out of Egypt and their freedom was secured, then that's that famous time when God spoke to Moses and he gave him those 10 famous laws, the 10 commandments. God established a covenant, a deep relationship with his people that he has just led out of Egypt. He promised them a few things. He promised them a unique presence among his people. It says in Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that symbolized the presence of God, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was present in that moment with his people. Specifically, he was present in that moment with his people where? At the place where they gathered to worship. That's not coincidental. God also promised a unique relationship with his people. He said, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. He claimed this ragtag bunch of Hebrews out in the wilderness as his very own possession. But he asked for something very specific in return. The first commandment. He asked to be their exclusive, the exclusive one that he, that they worshiped. He wanted to be the only one, the, the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 2. The first four of the Ten Commandments all dealt with worship. Our vertical relationship, as we call it today, with God. They would have never used that terminology. No other gods besides him. No idols or images for worship. Treat God's name as holy. Treat God's name as holy. Use it only in a worshipful sense. We need to reclaim that as believers today, in case you wondered. Set aside a special day of the week for rest and for worship. These four things haven't changed, if you didn't know that. None of the Ten Commandments have been gotten away with. They are how we, as Christians, should live as well. Now, these first four commandments, Jesus, of course, famously summarized in Mark 12. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. It sums all of those four things into one, and then he takes five to ten, and he says, oh, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. He took all six of those commandments and made it very simple. Don't do something to somebody else that you wouldn't do to yourself. Treat everybody well, and all of those things are followed. This is all our horizontal relationship with one another. Jesus's way with words is incredible, so easy to remember how he states things. God next wanted their worship, besides exclusive, he wanted their worship to focus on his word, his law. Exodus 24, verses 3 and 4, when Moses went and told the people all of the words and laws of the Lord, they responded in one voice with these words, everything the Lord has said we will do. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you will. I wonder what Moses was thinking when they said that. He was hopeful, probably. Maybe they will. That would be great. He hadn't had a whole lot of bad experiences yet with him. Moses wrote down everything that the Lord had said. You see, in corporate worship, God's people are to be instructed by the word of God. This is to confirm, to reaffirm their covenant, their relationship with God by their response to his word, in, in his word and offering. It's our response to God's word that he delivers 
to us. It's an incredible thing. David Pearson defines worship in a book called Engaging with God this way. He said, essentially, worship is an engagement with God on his terms and in the way that he proposes or makes it possible. God alone allows this relationship to exist. Worship in Israel was to be defined and guided by God's spoken and written word. Let me give you a little heads up. Nothing's changed. It's true. The third thing that God desired was this, a lifestyle of worship. He wanted people's whole lives to revolve around worshiping him. Listen to verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and he called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, that terminology, that way of expressing it tells us that God is suggesting the engagement with him at Sinai was actually to initiate or to inaugurate a total life pattern of worship and service for the whole nation of Israel. It was a different kind of relationship than what we have, but the expectations are identical. They were chosen to demonstrate what it meant to look like if you lived fully under the direct rule of God. Israel's national life was to be an expression of worship and obedience. (laughs) Did it look like that at times? The fourth thing that God desired from them was ritual worship, consistent gatherings together in the tabernacle or what later would become the temple. There was no accident that God put the tabernacle and the temple in the very center of the camp and of the town. It symbolized the the presence of God in all of Israel. It symbolized the divinely appointed means by which a sinful man, me, could now approach God who was otherwise completely unapproachable because of his holiness. His holiness requires sin to be far from him. The tabernacle was to stand in the very center of the camp and provide a means by which all of life was to revolve around and be related to God. Literally, in a a concrete form, it expressed the truth that human beings could not come into the presence of God on their own terms. A man by the name of Peterson wrote that in a article called Engaging with God. Think of it, the tabernacle, what did it represent? The temple later on, the grandeur, the magnificence, the the spectacular nature of God's majesty. If you've read the descriptions of the tabernacle and the details of the temple and everything that went in it, it was a magnificent place to represent our God. The limited access to the inner courts, reflected God's holiness. Only certain people could come at certain times. The sacrificial system itself spoke of God's sovereignty, that man could only approach God on his terms. This was it. This was the only way you could come before God. The provisions of the sacrifices for sin, well, that showed God's grace, that he was willing to forgive at all. It's an incredible thing when you really think about it. God's commitment to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of their sin, demonstrated his loyal love. It's a Jewish word called hesad. His loyal, unconditional love for them. 
Stephen Westrom wrote that in an article about the tabernacle and defining the, the different parts of the tabernacle and what it all meant. But have you ever wondered, like me growing up, because I remember learning some of these things growing up, and maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard of some of these things having to do with worship in the Old Testament. Why? Why did God make it so hard, <laughs> so exact, so precise? Why, why was it so complex to approach God? In the book of Exodus, and especially in the book of Leviticus, there is chapter after chapter after chapter of detail after detail about specifically how to worship and everything that had to be just right, the time, the place, your dress, the preparation, the nature, the conditions of the sacrifices, and on and on it goes. Why was it so complicated? Why was there so much detail compared to what we experience through Christ today? Well, there's many reasons possible. None of them are defined in the Bible. We, we've kind of got to look at it and go, well, God could be trying to accomplish this or this. And so here's a few possible examples. One, maybe, maybe it was to just simply speak to the greatness of God. The worship of God was to be precise and it was to be extravagant because of who he is without flaw and as beautiful as it possibly could be. Why? Because his holiness demanded it. It's possible that maybe God sought to emphasize the seriousness of sin. And so to approach God seemed a little risky and it was definitely costly because sin is absolutely deadly and people needed to understand the seriousness of that. Even with the sacrifices, the people as a big group, they had to stay outside of those inner courts. Only the priest could go into the holy place, and many of you know that only the high priest could go into the presence of God, the holies of holies, as it was called, and he could only do that one day a year. That was it on the Day of Atonement. So this exclusion kind of speaks to the separation that it requires for God to be from our sin. It makes the access that we now have to God through Jesus Christ one of the most revolutionary aspects of our New Testament faith. It is an incredible privilege that we have been granted, but only could happen through the blood of Christ. All else had to pass away. Maybe God wanted to test his people's obedience. <laughs> that worked. They failed, but it worked. And consequently, ultimately show their heart. The primary way an Old Testament believer expressed a heart of devotion to God was by faithfully adhering to God's instructions and for these ceremonial observances and sacrifices to take place as they were supposed to. But Jesus and even the uh, prophets in the Old Testament kind of put some parameters around that because he said that, hey, merely adhering to these external things means absolutely nothing to God at all. As a matter of fact, God said he hates them if that's how you bring them. If you merely bring the sacrifice without a heart for God, without a love and devotion and adherence to him, it's meaningless. It's completely meaningless. Perhaps, maybe, God wanted to build the expectation in his people of something greater, a more permanent solution. Do you think they ever got tired of having to go to the temple and sacrifice? Do you think the priests ever got tired of performing those rituals time after time, day after day, year after year? Well, if they had a heart for God, the answer would be no. But since they didn't, and we know many of them didn't, it was a burden for sure. Perhaps God wanted to build that expectation for the day that would come when something else would replace this system. 
in spite of people's confident assurance that I read to you a few moments ago. Hey, God, all of the words you have given us, all of the laws you've spoken to us, we will do, they said in Exodus 24.3. That didn't exactly happen, did it? Over the long term. <laughs> yeah, not quite so positive. The New Testament stresses that the law itself and a lot of modern believers dismiss the law completely. We're not to do that. The New Testament shares with us, Paul specifically, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, it is righteous, and it is good, Romans 7, 12. But the law was necessarily incomplete, and it was temporary. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by those endless sacrifices year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God. And so God, a long time ago in Jeremiah, chapter 31, gives us these encouraging words. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is what covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is how Paul then can call the law our guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came, Galatians 3.24. A fifth thing that God desires from our worship that we can glean from the Old Testament is this, testimony worship. God wants our worship of him to be a testimony to everyone watching, whether that's literally watching or just observing our lives. You see, God's plan was very simple. God would make his name great. God would make his name known, and then Israel, or God would make his name great among Israel, and then he would make his name known to the rest of the world through his people. God intended for the nation's worship life to be a testimony to all of the surrounding kings and kingdoms. Hey, here's the thing. This is my greatness. And God would bear witness to his glory and his nature. And through Israelites' obedience or disobedience, God's name would ultimately be made known. You see, in their obedience, if, if we fully obey God, the Lord our God, and you carefully follow all of his commands that he gave us, we can replace these ancient Hebrew words with us, it's modern, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And the blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city. You will be blessed in the country. The Lord will grant you that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on an oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to them. Deuteronomy 28. If, if Israel worshiped God faithfully and exclusively, then he promised to bless them as all the other nations around them. He promised that the other nations would live in fear of them, that they would serve, that they were serving this God and they would all be afraid of this God because he provided so much. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our 
God. That's from Psalm 98 and a few other psalms as well. But here's the thing. That wasn't the only way that God's name would become known. God's glory and his nature would be obvious in their disobedience as well. Israel was told repeatedly over and over by the prophets that God would destroy them just as swiftly as the nations that they sought to displace if they turned away from his worship and worshiped other gods. It's written like this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all he commands and his statutes that I command you today, then these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on the account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way and flee seven before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. The Lord will bring you and your king. Now that's an interesting sentence because this is written in Exodus. This is written before Israel had a king, hundreds and hundreds of years before Israel ever even thought of having a king because God was to be their only king. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known called Babylon. (laughs) Then there you shall serve other gods of wood and of stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among the people where the Lord will lead you away. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statues that he commanded you to keep. When When the nation turned to false worship, God would bring about hardship defeat, judgment, and ultimately exile. But even all of this would be a testimony to the nations all around them that the God of Israel was so holy that he would even judge his very own people when they turned away from him. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake, it is not for your sake, O people of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will still know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will not act for your sake, that I will act, declares the Lord. Let it be known for you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. It's the prophet Ezekiel. Now, Christians, I would warn us the same words of warning. We must never forsake the worship of our one true God with the materialistic things and other things in this world. And if we do, the same things are inevitable for us. The difference is we are not a nation of worship like Israel were. God did not establish a covenant with our nation. He establishes a covenant with each and every one of us. And it's up to us to carry that forward as potentially a nation. Now, as with the, Israel, the worship of Israel, well, so goes the nation's fate. You know that if you've looked at the Old Testament. If you haven't, it's an interesting history for sure. Either way, the nation would ultimately give testimony to glory and the holiness of our Lord and God. So where on earth, where on earth does that leave us today? If this was what was set up for them then, then where does that leave you and I to worship today? We've talked a lot about worship over the last few weeks. Here's where it all began to change. Of course, Jesus is the one that changed everything, but there was a specific moment in his ministry where he reveals a little secret 
to the most unlikely of all people on planet Earth. It's a story from John chapter 4. It's an encounter where Jesus and the disciples are traveling through Samaria. Jews didn't do that. They always walked around. They're traveling through Samaria, and Jesus stops at a well. The disciples continue on into town to go get some food for the gang. And while Jesus is at that well resting, a woman comes in the middle of the day to get water. Now, she has her own story. We won't go into all of that this morning because we want to get to the moment where Jesus begins to change worship for all eternity. And as they sit there and Jesus asks for a drink and they go back and forth and he offers her living water and she says, absolutely, let's take that. And then he reveals to her entire past and how she's living right now. What does she do? The same thing you or I would do. She changes the subject. That's exactly what she did. She did not respond. If, if you read that story from John 4 very carefully, there's no response from her. Oh, I see you know everything. Oh, by the way, sir, um, I can see you know your, I can tell you're a prophet. You know everything about me. So, so because you know everything about me, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. <laughs> what does that have to do with her life? Exactly, nothing. She's changing the subject for you and I, apparently, because this passage is for us as well. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. To which Jesus, you can only imagine, compassionately responds, woman, believe me, a time is coming when uh, you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't truly know, but we, we Jews, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers, that's everyone, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And oh, to have been there for this next moment. Because really, this is one of the very first times in the ministry of Jesus where he lays it all out there. Because she responds, oh, I know, I've, I've heard about that. There's someone called the Messiah that's going to come. And when he comes, man, he's going to explain everything to us. <laughs> Can you imagine the smirk on Jesus' face when she said that? Like, <laughs> you know what? I got a funny story about that. Um, yeah, you're right. And, and here's the thing. Um, the guy speaking to you, me, um, I'm the Messiah. Can you imagine that moment? Probably for him, too, because that really is kind of the first time he let the cat out of the bag, per se. Anybody paying attention might have been able to figure it out. But this is one of the first times that he says, oh, by the way, yeah, I am the Messiah, period, end of sentence, end of story. Now, we know what she does because that sentence changes her life forever. She runs back to town, tells everybody about Jesus, and they all come back out to meet him. He goes into town, stays in Samaria for a couple days, teaching them and converting almost the entire village. See, we are called to worship God now in spirit and in truth, not in the tabernacle, not in the temple, not in those ritualistic ways that they did then. We are called to worship in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit and truth absolutely means and involves loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Do we put that much effort into our worship? Or are those just words that we know that we've heard Jesus say? To say that a worshiper must worship in spirit in part means that our worship must be sincere. Its origins must be from within. We have to be motivated by our love and gratitude for God and for all that he has done. Worship cannot be mechanical. We can't do it because we have to. Now, that doesn't necessarily rule out certain rituals or even traditions at all. But it does demand this, 
It demands that any physical action, thing that we do, no matter how often we have done it for our entire lives, if those things are not filled with a heartfelt commitment to God through love and faith, then they are meaningless. And I must confess that here in just a few minutes, we're going to be doing something very ritualistic as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to have communion. And you know what? A lot of people within our brethren do that every week. Why? Because that's what we do every week. It's a ritual. It's something they have to do, no different than the Jews, going with no heart for God to take a sacrifice to the altar. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that this morning. If you come before God and this is just something you just always do, don't do it. (laughs) Please don't do it. Because the New Testament tells us we're eating and drinking condemnation upon ourselves when we do it in that way. Instead, come before God with that heart, that spirit for worship and remembering what the sacrifice genuinely means. Come with that commitment, with that love, and see how your body, your emotions, your mind just completely responds differently to this thing that we just do every week. It means so much more. The word spirit here also absolutely could be referring to the Holy Spirit as well. The Apostle Paul said that Christians worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we should put no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3.3. It's the Holy Spirit who awakens us to an understanding of God's beauty, His splendor, His power. It's the Holy Spirit who stirs in us this idea, this rejoicing, this celebrating that takes place this desire to give thanks to our God. It's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see and ultimately savor that our God and everything that he is through us or to us through Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who I hope, pray, orchestrates everything that we do here together as we corporately gather to worship our God. As we worship the Spirit, we also have to remember the second part of what Jesus said. He didn't just say worship in the Spirit, end of story. He said, worship this in spirit and in truth. This means that our worship must conform to the revelation God has given us through his word. It must be informed by who God is and what he's like. Our worship must be rooted and tied to the realities of his word. Worship is not meant to be formed simply by what feels good, but it should be informed by the light of, of truth. What is truth? Genuine, Christ-exalting worship can never be mindless. It can never be, it has to be grounded in biblical truth. It's got to focus on the truth of all we know of who the Lord our God the Father is, who God the Son is, and who God the Holy Spirit is. To worship God inconsistently with what's revealed in His Word ultimately becomes what we would call idolatry, and we don't want to do that as the body of Christ. Now, some people prefer to to only worship in spirit. You know what I'm talking about. They they don't really, the the truth, eh, they kind of view the truth as kind of a a killer of emotions and things like that. They think focusing on the truth smothers the spirit in some way. Their focus in worship is by the feelings that they experience during the session, if you will. Now, don't misunderstand this, okay? Okay. Worship that doesn't engage and inflame your emotions, your affections, is of very little value to God because it means he's not connecting with your heart. Jesus criticized the worship leaders of his day. Why? Because they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far 
from him. True worship must engage the heart, the affections, all of our being. But any affection or feeling or emotion that's stirred up by error or by false doctrine is completely worthless to God. It was just a play on your emotions or guilt or whatever. Flip it over to the other side. Some people prefer to only worship in truth. They're actually really uncomfortable, maybe even offended when they themselves begin to experience something weird in worship, or they see other people worshiping fully, all in, and that makes them very uncomfortable. If that is you, and I know it can be because of the faith tradition many of us have grown up in, if that is you, I want you to consider something. Who's the source of the emotions that well up within us? (laughs) Don't misunderstand. God did not create us to be governed or dictated by our emotions or our feelings, but he absolutely gave them to us as a part of being made in his image. And while you might not normally be an emotional person, right? There's nothing wrong with that. When you find yourself in the presence of God, experiencing his glory, and the spirit of that same God comes within you and something begins to stir within inside of you, that is okay. Actually, you know what? It's better than okay to react to that. However God has wired you to react, do it. Don't hold it in. You don't have to be like so-and-so over there that's raising their hands or clapping or jumping up and down or crying out, whatever. You don't have to be like that. Do it how God wired you to do it, but please don't keep it in. It's okay. It's okay. Why is it okay? Because it's what you were created to do, and it's called worship. The first step in worshiping our God is simply this. You got to come to know and love and accept his son, Jesus. Paul wrote, as we started this series with in 12.1 of Romans, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so whether you're watching at home or you're here in this place, have you done that? Have you offered your entire life up to God? Have you submitted to the nice warm now, waters of baptism behind me? Have you allowed God into your life to forgive your sins? Have you taken on this new creation, this new form that he promises you to have if you are in him? Have you laid your entire life on the sacrificial altar and died to self, and now live for him who lives within you. If you haven't done that, then this moment on this day would be the perfect day to begin your true and proper worship of your Savior. We would invite you to do that, whether today or any day forward, but it's never too soon, but it can be too late. I want people to think about that. For those of us maybe that have been believers for a long time, Romans 12.1 is a good kick in the backside. It's a good reminder to ourselves, have we, do we daily ask, do we daily lay our lives down as a living sacrifice on the altar before God? And if we don't, then maybe today we need to confess that to God, go before him and begin anew. Because the reality of our worship, it's no different than the worship of the Israelites. I alluded to this earlier. There's an external benefit. There was an external benefit to the Israelites following God's commands. And that was simply that his glory would be made known. Now, God told them, hey, my glory is going to be known whether you obey me or you don't. I'm going to make it happen. But do you know which way is easier? (laughs) Sure is easier if you're on this side with me. 
then you're against me. And he would say the same to us. If we're a believer in Christ, if we live a life of worship, guess what that's going to do to those around us? It's going to begin to draw them in to the presence of God, something they will never experience all by themselves out on their own. But through you and your faithful worship of your king, they will see, they will observe, and they will be drawn into his presence through you. And his spirit within you, what a blessing, what a gift that is. So for those of you that have somebody on your prayer list that you've been praying for for a long time, that you just want to get them to, be, to know your Jesus, for that family member that is not a person of faith, maybe there's something missing in your life that isn't drawing them in yet. And God is waiting to meet with you today to reveal that to you and say, hey, <laughs> hey, Israel, if you worship me in this way, my name will be made known. What is that for you? Father God, as we continue to worship you this morning, I know for me, I've grown up in the church, and so coming and doing this each week is a ritual. It's just what we do. And in our lives, I know if we don't do it, it seems like something's out of place. But Father, it is so much more than that. I was never told as a kid that when we come to gather and worship, that, that whole when two or more are gathered is a real thing and that your revealed presence is available to us in that atmosphere. And so my ideas, my thoughts on gathering have changed even through this series as I realize that I need to come hungry. I need to come with a desire each and every time we gather to meet with you. And I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ online and here in this place, we'll do the same each and every week and transform this house of God, these people of God, and the people that are on fire for you, a flame so bright that the world begins to draw its attention in your direction. That's what we cry out to you this morning. And if there's anyone here that has not had that first worship experience, they've not committed their life fully to Christ, then I pray this morning that that takes place. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray.